Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege we have of being able to read your word, to study your word, to pray your word, to sing your word, and to look into your word. I just thank you for the privilege we have of having your word, your revelation. Holy Spirit, help me to speak well of the Lord Jesus who came into the world in his precious name. Amen. So if you can turn with me to 1 John, 1 John 5. I read verses 13 to 15 and then 18 to 21. So 1 John First letter to John in chapter 5, verse 13 to 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. John is very straightforward in giving to us the purpose, not just of his letter, but of his gospel. If you remember, we've been studying John's gospel, and in John 20, 31, he tells us his purpose in writing it, that these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And here in 1 John 5 and verse 13, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, in his gospel, he is writing so that you might believe, and by believing have eternal life in his name. And in his letter, he is writing, because you do believe, and he wants you, us, me, to know, therefore, you have eternal life. Um, it, was really, it was a thread throughout the memorial service yesterday of where you know, Kevin is, and uh, the, the, the glory of eternal life, the wonder of eternal life. And we live each day now in light of that day. And in this final section of the letter, we see John giving several reminders and then a concluding exhortation. So we'll look at those, the reminders, and then the exhortation. There are six things, I think, that John tells us. Reminders as believers, as believers in the Lord Jesus. 1 John 5 and verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. If that is you this morning, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, 
You have given your assent to these things, but more than that, you put your trust in him, then these things we know to be true. It's a wonderful reminder as we come into this week, these things are true. Number one, we know that we have eternal life. Notice the present tense, you have eternal life. Not you will have, you have eternal life as a believer on Jesus. In a sense, it is what is coming, but here he can speak, as he does elsewhere in John's Gospel, that you have it in your present possession. It cannot be lost. You have it. If you're a believer, you have eternal life. Many will be remembering in this room, but also Kevin's family, for example, those who've gone before. And if they've died in the Lord, what a comfort it is to know that though they have died, behold, they live. They have eternal life. It's not that they will, they have eternal life. And now they have it in its fullness. So that's the first thing we know as believers. We have eternal life. Secondly, verse 15 it's a great, this is a great reminder that God hears us when we pray. We have access to God in a way that the holiest of Israelites did not have. Because once a year the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and make petition for all the people. But we have a great high priest who has gone before us into the heavens that we might have constant and eternal access to God. Isn't that wonderful, believer? That he hears us when we pray. So number one, we have eternal life. Number two, he hears us when we pray. Number three, we know we will receive what we ask of God in prayer. That's in the second half of verse 15. And there is an important guardrail to this promise, it says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us at the end of verse 14. And even the Lord Jesus, when he prayed in the garden, said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And if the perfect son of God prayed that, and indeed, what he asked for, God did not see fit to grant him in his human nature. But he had to drink of the cup of his wrath. Then we too, when we pray, we're always seeking to pray in accordance with the will of God. So this is not some kind of vending machine prayer or vending machine God that if you put in a prayer, you'll get out the chocolate bar that you want whenever you want it. But when we pray according to his will, he hears us. And according to that will, he gives what we asked for. So we don't pray with presumption, but not my will, but thine be done. We pray with confidence. And our prayers, though often they seem, they feel so weak. My prayers feel like that. I often don't think like I'm banging on the door of heaven. It feels more like a few fizzy little rockets that go up a couple of inches and then plummet to the earth. 
but it should give us confidence that our prayers are not falling to the ground. However weak, however weary, they ascend into heaven and at the right hand of God, the Lord Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. He hears us. He hears the cry of our hearts. And he will always do what is good for us as his children. Number four, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's really clear in verse 18. Now, this verse and other verses like it, in 1 John particularly, have often confused Christians. Does this mean that if you're a true believer, that you do not sin at all? No, it's not a statement demanding of us perfection, because the believer will not be perfect this side of heaven. But the Christian is a changed person. 1, 1 John 1 verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So clearly John is not holding out to us the unrealistic standard that you will never sin again in life. And I thank the Lord for that, because otherwise I'm done for. But he's given to us the very important reminder that if you're genuinely a Christian, there is something that has fundamentally changed about you. Yes, your Christian life, like mine, can feel up and down, down and up. But in the sense of your imperfection, there is a trajectory of progress. There is a momentum of change, so that your life is no longer marked, characterised by the same sinful patterns it once was. There's a dying away of the old man, there's a breaking of old habits. We can change. A gradual weakening of the world over our hearts. That we long to be with God's people that the things of the Lord matter more to us than the things of the world. The things of the world pale when we consider the things of Jesus. It was just a beautiful picture and I was so impressed with it, but I'll say it again today. Is on, on Thursday, Alan, Alan Stobart showed me the, the, the crossroads where Kevin Roy was standing just, just before the Lord took him. And it, it, I, had no, I had no sense of how beautiful these crossroads were. Because in one way you look and you see the glorious Lake, Lake District Fells. Absolutely beautiful. You turn um, 90 degrees, I think it is, and then you, and then you see the, the hills of Scotland. You, you, know, you see the hills of Scotland. And you turn another 90 degrees and you see the Pennines. Absolutely amazing. And the sun was out. It was absolutely glorious. And I, and I just had this real sense that however beautiful that was, it paled into insignificance to what he saw next. Because he saw the face of Jesus. Today you'll be with me in paradise. There is, there is a breaking of the hold of the world over us that, because the world means less and Christ means more. He is all in all. Number five, verse 19. We know that we are from God. We belong to God. 
As a Christian, you belong to God. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to the devil. You belong to God. The name of the Lord is the strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Verse 19 says, The world lies in the power of the evil one, but we are from God. Believer, you are from God. You belong to God. You don't belong to the world, you belong to God. He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Everything about us would have us believe that you are your own. You control yourself. You're the master of your own fate. You're the captain of your own ship. But the Christian gospel says no. There is only freedom found when we believe and confess we are not our own, but we belong to another. We belong to God. And the final thing that we know, that we know if we believe in the name of the Son of God, believe in the Incarnation, believe in Jesus. Verse 6. And this is one that connects us explicitly to Christmas. If you were saying, what on earth is he rabbiting on about and he's not talking about Christmas yet? Here it is. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. We should understand that to mean he has come in the flesh. Six times in this final section we have a statement that as believers it is true of us. And these statements really word backwards. You start from the last one and go up to the top. Because of what you know in verse 20, the rest are true. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. So you can be born again. So you can be set apart from the world. So you can pray with confidence and you can know you have eternal life. All because Jesus came. So the knowledge in verse 20 is foundational for the rest. We know, if you're a believer this morning, we know that the Son of God has come in the flesh. And that really is the true meaning of Christmas. That is what we celebrate, that the Son of God has come. Have you stopped to think during all that that you're trying to get done? What a miraculous thing we've been singing about this morning. The eternal one, born of a virgin, dwelling in a stable, omnipotent power coming to us in tiny helplessness. In the early days of the Christian church, there was controversy over whether Mary could be called Theotokos, which is Greek for God-bearer. And actually, it was was a question that I studied recently as well. Is Mary the mother of God? And there is some sense that maybe that doesn't, especially as Protestants, we kind of go, hang on a minute, what do we, you know, that we should speak in such lofty terms about Mary. And there was a nervousness about the term, but the right view went out. And that is, it is right to say that, but the the statement is not saying so much about Mary as it is saying about the one that she was carrying. Because the one in her womb was God in the flesh. So she was Theotokos the bearer. 
Not of a superhuman avenger. Not of a superhero. Not of a James Bond spy who can never die. But of the God-man. 1 John 1 says, That from which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is thinking about himself with the other apostles. We touched him. We had a meal with him. We are eyewitnesses. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you really believe what we sing at Christmas? And this is a great encouragement for you to come this afternoon and sing it, by the way. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. God of God, light of light, lowly of pause, not the virgin's womb, very God begotten, not created. There's another Christmas song we don't actually sing here, but I read a lot growing up. This flower whose fragrance tender, with sweetness fills the air, dispels with glorious splendour the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God, from sin and death he saves us and lightens every load. Do we believe the songs that we sing at Christmas? Or is it just sentimental? Have you and I forgotten how good the good news really is? How good the good news really is? We know that the Son of God has come. And that could be, you know, to me, well, that's probably a great way to finish the letter. The Son of God has come, hallelujah. But he's tacked on verse 21, which is kind of like a strange postscript, a strange PS. You've got six final statements we know, and that would have been a really strong ending. If he was at school, I wonder whether his English language teacher would have said, John, you could have probably done without the last sentence. But it's a perfect way to end the letter. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know that, but it's a perfect way. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. To the final exhortation is the perfect summary of all he's been writing about in his letter. John is saying, and I'm sure he, the Lord would say to us today, do not be swept away by impostors who would have you chase the world or cling on to your earthly possessions. Don't run after any other God than the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is true God and eternal life. So let me make the end of this message really simple. One question. Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe that this man, real flesh and blood, physical, first century Jewish man, that if we had lived at the time, he would have looked like us and talked like us. This Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And he is the only name under heaven on earth by which we can be saved from our sins.
Do you believe in the Son of God? 1 John 5 verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son, whoever, whoever, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. God, John's argument is that you believe the eyewitness testimony of men. What about the testimony of God? We believe, let's be honest, we believe a load of rubbish we read in the newspapers, don't we? And I've never read so much rubbish as I have in the last year. Do you believe God? And he has in mind the testimony of God, perhaps at Jesus' baptism, when God said, this is my beloved son. Or the testimony of the Spirit in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, God bears witness. God bears witness. And we know from elsewhere the New Testament, part of that witness is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, speaking to your heart. Maybe right now testifying to your heart that you know this to be true, that Jesus is the Son of God. God bears witness. So if God tells us something, and if God shows us something in his word, and God reveals something in history, and here we have the record of it, and we don't believe him, then we're calling God a liar. He has shown us something in his word. He has told us something. He has revealed something in history. We have the record of it. And if we do not believe it, we're calling God a liar. John Stott said, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. And its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and attributes falsehood to him. So the question this morning is simply this. We're gathered this time of year, we're gathered every week to celebrate Jesus, the Saviour of the world. But do you believe in the Son of God? Everyone talks about faith at Christmas. No one has a problem about faith, but what is the object of your faith? And we have before us the object and the only object that saves. Do you believe in Jesus? And do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe Jesus is the Saviour of the world? Do you believe Jesus is the Lord and the giver of life? Do you believe that in his name and in his name alone there is forgiveness of sins and there is hope? The Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. Hallelujah. And there is a great day coming when this Christ, born as a helpless babe, will return on the clouds to claim those who are his own. That is, that is our hope. That is our blessed assurance. Do you believe in this Christ, the Christ of the Bible? There is a lot to love about Christmas, or not, depending. It's okay not to, by the way. And I sincerely hope you enjoy every good gift of family and food and your own family traditions. But family won't save you. Watching It's a Wonderful Life or Die Hard 
Or what did the Germans watch? You think that, that, I can't remember what it is. It's that, that black and white thing anyway. It won't save you, whatever it is. Gingerbread houses won't save you. Dreaming of a white Christmas won't save you. Little children, keep yourself from idols. There is a reason that John ends that way, that we might not follow after imposters, not in his day or in ours. And if there ever is a season where idols mingle with the truth, it is Christmas. But know this, the Son of God has come in the flesh and given us understanding so we may know him who is true, that we may be in him and he in us. The baby in the manger is the true God and eternal life. May it be your portion that we all in this room believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To him be the glory. Amen. Amen.